Hey everyone, Quinn here. We get into some pretty heavy topics this week. Content warning for discussion of racism, misogyny, and sexual assault. There is also some use of profanity beginning around the 25-minute mark. Also, the most important U.S. election in our lifetimes is coming up next week on November 3rd. So please, please, please make sure you vote. Because your voice matters and your vote matters. Hello, I'm Quinn. And I'm Alex. And we're a couple couple of of characters. characters. We discuss topics related to creating characters for role-playing games. And today we have Connie Chang with us, the GM and executive producer of Transplanter RPG. Hey there! It's great to be here. Awesome! Do you want to just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your show? Absolutely! Uh, So as Quinn and Alex so graciously said, my name is Connie. Uh, I am the GM and executive producer behind Transplanter RPG, which is an all-transgender, person-of-color-led, 100% homebrewed Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition campaign set in a non-colonial anti-Orientalist world. Uh, Our main campaign and GM advice series slash player roundtable stream on alternating Saturdays at 3 p.m. Central uh, on Transplanter RPG on Twitch. Uh, We're also on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Tumblr, pretty much anywhere you can find anyone. And I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Thanks for coming. Totally. Yeah, so I guess we'll just get started off with some questions. Yeah, so uh, I guess the first question is, you know, we like to talk about characters that might not always get the spotlight on this show. So what character have you brought for us to talk about today a little bit? Totally. Uh, So as the GM, I'm playing definitely more than just a couple of characters uh, (laughs) on Transplanter's main campaign. Uh, But the one NPC I have brought in today is a human, first of all, uh, by the name of Dr. Hitsaguten Oluso. Uh, They are essentially the party's quest giver. You know, the classic reclusive researcher living on the edge of a huge chasm uh, in the badlands <laughs> in this world. You know, the classic trope. Uh, they are an interesting kind of, a little bit of an oddball, very serious type. Uh, they're basically a lot of legends and mythos surround them. They're supposed to be this like legendary adventurer who doesn't work well with other people. Um, I sort of set them up as uh, extremely competent, like implied high-level NPC uh, type, like the Gandalf to, you know, everyone else's hobbits. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, and we found this out through play, something that has surprised even myself uh, about Dr. Aluso is they're kind of... um, they're a little bit of a, uh, they're a little awkward in social situations uh, to the extent that they might say something kind of rude or <laughs> rather arrogant. Uh, and mm-hmm. our first encounter with Dr. Aluso, from the player's side at least, was rather negative. No one had a very good impression of Hitsaguten <laughs> uh, in a way that was very surprising to me. Um, and it made for very uh, ripe and juicy drama. Yeah, for sure. Because you're like, oh yeah, this person... They're gonna, they're gonna love this person. They're gonna oh, give them yeah. all this great stuff, and then everybody hates them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's basically how it went. Uh, <laughs> but you know, 
uh, Dr. Luso sent our party out uh, on a quest, and the send-off, I think, was a lot nicer. They tried to make it up to the party uh, after we ended one session on uh, basically a sour note. Uh, but they tried to bake, bake this cake, essentially, uh, and say, I'm sorry, I know I can be kind of abrasive and a little socially awkward, not pick up on cues. Uh, this is my way of, of, of apologizing. There's a reason I live by myself, by a chasm. Yes, 100%. <laughs> Uh, and a lot of the inspiration for Dr. Aluso definitely came from, you know, my own, you know, struggles with social situations as someone with ADHD. Uh, I was really mining a lot of that uh, for the personality and the characterization of Dr. Aluso. Um, and we actually had a really interesting post-session discussion about Hitsaguten, just me as a GM and the players being like, oh, this character, like, are they autistic? Like, were you going for, like, displaying a form of neurodivergence? Right. Um, and I was like, honestly, like, that was a subconscious slash unconscious choice that I think made it out in their character. Right. Yeah, and it's not surprising for a, you know, very focused recluse to be maybe autistic because a lot of autistic people, you know, they strive in one area, but then right, they're hyper not very good at social. Mm-hmm. Right, they're hyper-focused in whatever their interests are. Totally, totally. And, and mm-hmm. might appear standoffish mm-hmm. just because they only want to talk about that thing. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because one of my siblings has autism and they're definitely like that sometimes. Totally. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm also trying to be very careful in my portrayal of Dr. Aluso. Um, I do have ADHD, but I, you know, don't identify as someone who's autistic. Um, and right. I didn't want to do like the stereotypical like savant kind of character right. you know who like is like oh like so I, I'm trying to be very careful about you know how I'm I'm portraying Dr. Aluso and how they're being read uh, not just by the players but by the audience there were like some you know uh, people posted in our like um, campaign chatter uh, channel in our discord server being like is Dr. Aluso autistic like was that intentional and the players were also picking up on it even though it, it honestly wasn't something I was intentionally putting into their characterization but now that it's being read that way you know I'm trying to be doubly careful about the way I portray them yeah right. definitely which is mm-hmm. a great way to go about doing it is just knowing that hey this is what I'm doing and I don't want to offend anyone mm-hmm. so I also think it's mm-hmm. great that you have an NPC that is a person with a disability even though you know you didn't necessarily plan it that way it kind of is turning out that way but I just mm-hmm. think it's great to, you know because in the real world it's unlikely that you would never encounter someone with a mental disability or a physical disability so and at, you know as someone that's visually impaired I love to see that diversity representation mm. of people with disabilities as well mm-hmm. definitely I think you know especially now with uh the combat wheelchair you know coming out yeah i think that disability discourse specifically in tabletop has become a lot more mainstream and i recently saw a twitter thread um by this cosplayer i won't you know at them uh for you know to preserve their privacy right. uh but release a statement about you know after you know listening to the community they've decided not to cosplay a blind character because they we're not blind mm-hmm. uh, because they didn't want to offend anyone and they wanted to be really careful. And after listening to the feedback uh, from their fan base, they decided not to proceed with it. And there was a lot of like um, conversation happening in the replies about like whether or not people, both, you know, people who were blind and people who weren't uh, mm-hmm. had very differing opinions, which just I think further hammers home the idea that like, you know, 
disabled people are not a monolith, you know, people, autistic people, people with ADHD are not, you know, a single group, no one person speaks for the entire community, but there, I think there are ways that portrayals can cause harm and create harm, uh, especially if they're kind of thoughtless, mm -hmm. which is why, again, I'm trying to be so careful, um, you know, and if it turns out that folks, you know, who are autistic are like, actually, don't do that, Connie. <laughs> like, you don't know what you're doing. Like, right. I, you know, will be listening to that and be aware of that. Yeah, I myself have uh, never played a blind character, but I do think that we're probably going to make an episode on a character with a disability just because, you know, for me, it's like, well, I'm blind every day. I don't necessarily want to play a blind character in this RPG when I have mm. a chance to not. But I also think mm -hmm. it you know, for me as someone that has been blind for a while, it's like, I don't know that I would give disadvantage on attack rolls if you're blind, you know, because mm. once you've lived with it for long enough, you can accommodate and make your changes that you need. Right. You adapt to it. Mm -hmm. but, and it's you know, not limiting in every single way. Yeah. Yeah. But if mm -hmm. you, if you are born with sight and, you know, seen until this battle and someone cast blindness on you, then mm -hmm. yeah, you're probably mm -hmm. disadvantaged mm -hmm. in a big way. That's a really interesting insight that I hadn't considered before. Just like how long have you, you know, have you lived with this disability your whole life? You know, uh, are you recently disabled? Yeah. And like, is it temporary? Because I know blindness mm -hmm. is a temporary condition in a lot of like fifth edition mechanics. Right. You know, and it's like, well, sure. The first day that you're blind, mm -hmm. you're not walking around with your cane and like going to the store by yourself but mm. you know you deal with it for a year or two and now you can do those things so i just think it, it's all about you know perspective and how long mm -hmm. has this been going on in their life totally all right well this kind of a little bit leads into our next question with how like gaming can help you learn more things about yourself and your perspective on the world and stuff and we were just wondering if playing D&D &D or any other RPGs help you discover your gender identity. That is a really fun question. Um, I would say for me personally, the answer is probably not. Mm -hmm. uh, because I was coming into my transness uh, kind of... Well, it is interesting. I was coming into my transness around the same time I was getting into D&D, &D, but I never really used... Dungeons and Dragons or any sort of tabletop role-playing game as a vehicle to ex specifically explore gender. Okay. Honestly, D&D was more of an escape for me, uh, especially when I first got into it. Um, but I have players uh, in my campaign to whom the answer would be a resounding yes. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop games were definitely a way for them to both explore their identity and also perform it in mm -hmm. a way that they felt like they never had opportunity to perform outside you know in in reality um but i do think that it is a vehicle that is extremely um can be extremely transformative like any sort of artistic medium any sort of theatrical you know acting you know um situation uh dungeons and dragons is uh, a game that is rife with opportunity for transformation right and especially because it's a very safe way to explore that if you are you know, if you think you might be trans and then you can go and play a character of the gender you identify as, and now you can really explore mm -hmm. that space for the first time, maybe in a safe way, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. And I'm trying to be very, speaking of gender, uh, intentional about how gender works in my homebrew world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I specifically made a nation, uh, the United Tribes of Jukai, um, where the god that they worship, Sen, is a god and a goddess of transformation. And in Jukan, uh, the word for person is the same as the word for man and woman. And Sen is a specifically gender fluid goddess slash god, uh, which also is the way I identify someone who's genderqueer, gender fluid, non-binary. Um, and this idea that, you know, the lines between gender identities is porous, mm-hmm. um, but also significant, you know, the way that Sen is a man versus a god versus a woman are all different and equally important in their own ways. Um, and I think because of that, like fantasy, the world of fantasy, the world of magic of D&D is, is again, so ripe for, you know, imagining ways of doing gender, ways of doing race, ways of doing conflict at all um, that cannot and do not exist in our world. And I'm always so excited when I see a non-normative approach to gender when it comes to fantasy gaming. Yeah, definitely. That sounds very interesting. I like that a lot. Yeah, I think that Mm -hmm. I read a book series Mm -hmm. called Ark of a Scythe by Neil Schusterman, and one of the nations that they have is very like that, in which they are all kind of gender fluid, and they grow up that way, not being male or female, and then Mm. they can decide as adults if they want to stay there and continue that lifestyle, or if they want to move and go be male or female somewhere else, you know? So, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is really interesting. I was just going to say that, yeah, one of Mm -hmm. the characters who is from Mm -hmm. that nation, they're like, oh, when it's cloudy, I feel like I don't remember which it is. They feel like a man when it's cloudy and a woman when it's sunny, or vice versa. So... It was yeah. a very interesting way oh, for that's funny. that to present. And it was mm-hmm. confusing for the other characters. And they're mm-hmm. like, I don't see why you're so confused. This is just how it is for me. So I also liked how hmm. upfront the author was about that. Like, it might seem odd to you, but that's like your baggage that you're bringing, you know? Mm, totally. And we see like tons of gender, like non-normativity right. and fluidity mm-hmm. in nature, like in the real world too, you know, like with invertebrates and also yeah. like certain lizards and stuff like that. Um, for sure. It's not just male, female. I think that's a very <laughs> a cis-normative kind of probably Western way of looking at it. Um, though speaking of fantasy books, uh, a recent series that I've been really enamored with is um, JY, I can never get it straight. I think it's JY Yang's uh, Tensorit series. And similar to what you brought up earlier, um, the children in this series get to decide their gender when they are of age. Uh, but up until then, they're treated with they, them pronouns and are essentially non binary. Um, and it's, you know, this idea of choosing your gender, of choosing your path, right. I think is very interesting. I definitely want to check that out. Yeah, it's awesome. The Tensorit series uh, is self described as silk punk. Uh, basically, it's set in like a uh, Asian-inspired fantasy world. Super cool. The writing is immaculate. Uh, really awesome. I'd recommend it to anyone. Awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think this this also kind of ties into our next question. So uh, you are an Asian American person, and I was just, or we were wondering, I guess, how do you think that people of color and or LGBTQIA plus 
community members have been represented in games that you have played? I think that's a great question. Um, and what I will say is that my experience with D&D uh, starts probably in 2016. Uh, I thought it would be really fun and interesting to just, you know, I've always loved theater I've always loved writing. Uh, I've always loved improv. Mm -hmm. you know, as someone who's been doing improv for a really long time, like 11, 12 years at this point, D&D um, &D seemed like the perfect blend of all of those things. Uh, so my experience with D&D, &D, you know, especially compared to some of the old guard, is fairly limited. Uh, I've only really been in the hobby for three-ish, four years maybe at this point, at the most. Um, so when it comes to representation, I can only really speak toward what I've been seeing in recent years mm -hmm. uh, and discourse and blog posts written, you know, in the past, uh, but I've never directly encountered. Um, but based on what I know of just media in general in the West, specifically in the US, right. um, there's a lot of work to be done, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, there's a lot of, you know, voices that I'm sure were there before, but are now for whatever reason, because of Twitter, um, or because it just seems like the pendulum of, you know, public opinion and perception is, is, is always swinging. And right now mm -hmm. it, it seems to be swinging in the direction of more representation, but whenever it swings one way, there's always reactionary blowback. Definitely. Um, so honestly, a part of me is holding out for that blowback. Um, because whenever people push for change, there's always reactionaries. Right. Uh, but right now it seems... I, I am in a situation where I am tentatively hopeful. Uh, it seems like, you know, Wizards of the Coast uh, appear to be interested, you know, in uh, putting out more diverse supplements, uh, hiring more diverse writers and designers, etc. Um, you know, during their D&D &D celebration um, live stream, oh, yeah. uh, I think they invited a, uh, what's it, Daniel... Honestly, I'm so bad with names, but they invited one of the uh, folks in charge of Asians Represent, um, okay. that Twitter account, and the live stream. They did a reading of Oriental uh, Adventures, I think, uh, from AD&D. Uh, they did like mm -hmm. a really long series where they just like read through the supplement uh, and picked it apart and said, basically, this is really racist uh, and For really sure. Orientalist. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Wizards of the Coast, D&D, you know, invited one of them to speak, you know, without, you know... A filter and i think that is definitely a step in the right direction um but again tentatively hopeful mm -hmm. i definitely think this is you know these are steps in the right direction by the people who have power the people behind the scenes not just what's in the books right not just the art um you know and the names in the books uh, but also the people making the names making the art i think that's a step in the right direction 100 percent. Yeah. yeah yeah but again i am also worried <clears throat> excuse me again i am also worried uh i have seen a lot of you know angry angry dudes in the replies uh they'll be the death of us all angry people on twitter yeah uh, being like the pc police you know and all mm -hmm. that garbage mm -hmm. so there's that as well yeah. yep it's unfortunate that these people mm -hmm. are the ones that are in power still and they're trash babies <laughs> yes for sure for sure but it does seem like there are people within the institution who genuinely care about change um, I just hope that their voices are seriously considered. Mm -hmm. Same here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, another problem is that even when we start implementing these changes, it's still going to take some time because, you know, I know at least for Wizards of the Coast, their magic products are like three years in advance. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure D&D, &D, a lot of the stuff is already in the works for mm -hmm. like a year or two from now. But I hope that they can 
consider these changes, get these diverse people hired to help them make the products that they already have coming out better and more representative and, you know, not as uh, racist. You know, mm-hmm. that that is the bottom line is it should not be racist, but then obviously we want more than that. Yeah. The world mm. is a diverse place not populated by one kind of person. Exactly. So our content and our art and all of that stuff should be representative of that. I absolutely agree. Um, I think the Oscars recently came out with these new, like, um, diversity requirement guidelines. Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Alex was telling me about that. Yeah. yeah I think I, there's, mm-hmm. like, uh, four of them. There are. I read through them, and I was honestly pretty impressed uh, with the rigor and the thought that went into them. And I wonder if, like, a similar, I don't know, lesson could be, you know, applied when it comes to tabletop because it's not just about representation like i was saying like on the page right like of course we want settings that are you know not always western european that would be interesting but it's also in the way that Mm -hmm. the settings are presented if we look at oriental adventures uh from advanced dungeons and dragons that is a non-western setting but it was also really messed up it was really racist it was really orientalist um they had like no asian people on the writing team that's another thing it's who's doing you know the art the creative directors the writers but also like you know i was really impressed with what they put in the oscar guidelines about we y'all need to hire diverse interns and y'all need to give them actual training and resources Mm -hmm. and like support and make sure that they are you know pipelined into your institution and are given like leadership positions later on like it's not just enough to think about the product right now you have to plan for the future that's what it means to be actually committed right like anyone can just tweet black lives matter once and donate once right it's you know the staying that counts it's the continued fight it's the idea that this isn't like a short-term thing you you gotta be in it for the long term exactly mm-hmm. yeah and um, speaking to that have you heard about the um wagadu chronicles yes which i also think is great that you know what you're saying about there aren't enough eastern cultures represented by people from those communities here's one written by black people and it has them in their diverse cultures and different things set in a world Mm -hmm. like that which is also great to see like i love what the community is bringing and i hope that they can continue to do things like that Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. yeah i also hear what you're saying where you know if the big players in the game aren't committed to these kinds of changes it's just going to stagnate definitely for sure i'm really excited uh for the wagadu chronicles i'm not too sure how to pronounce it i have to watch an actual video where someone actually does the pronunciation um but i'm very i'm very excited for that project um the fact that it's going to be like an mmorpg as well is Mm -hmm. staggering to me that is so ambitious and i'm so freaking pumped to be able to participate in it uh sometime soon on uh th- i listened to three black halflings and oh yeah they they're had great one of the creators on it and i think he said wagadu wagadu cool so yep thank you for correcting me i believe that's how it's pronounced but you know i could be wrong as well but that is how they said it so that's how i'm going to say it. great wagadu <laughs> good to know all right cool We've got another question for you. Bring it on. All right. So we had Daquan Watson on our show a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. 
And he said that the best way to accurately portray different perspectives is by playing with a diverse group of people, which we've already talked about, that, you know, you got to have people from different backgrounds playing in your games, writing the material, all that stuff. Do you have any tips for how gamers can be more inclusive in their groups? And then also, do you think cishet players should play PCs that are you know, within the LGBTQIA plus umbrella? Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, my response to that question is less of a should I and more of a how are you? Um, mm-hmm. I think that like a maxim such as only queer people can play queer characters or like only, honestly, I'm going to straight up say like only people of color can play characters of color. I have really mixed feelings about that um, mm-hmm. because I feel like it is limiting first of all. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, it just feels, it feels a little bit like not trusting each other and ourselves to be able to do the work and to be able to show up in the ways that matter. Like, I, I get it. Uh, there have been lots of, for example, people who aren't disabled playing disabled characters in ways that have been extremely offensive and like tangibly harmful, have like incited violence against people who are actually disabled, stuff like that. I understand. I totally get the hesitation. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, it's it's acting. I feel like if you want to practice your craft, you have to be able to step outside of your comfort zone and your own lived experience to help you cultivate empathy um, and also, you know, be able to open up your own perspective to, you know, uh, points of view that are completely new to you. And I think specifically when it comes to cishet people playing queer characters, I say go for it. Uh, And I say be careful. And I say do your research. Um, And I say, you know, be open to being wrong. Be open to being like, mm-hmm. you know what, what you're doing is not it. Uh, maybe don't do that. Um, and be open to saying, yeah, you're totally right. I fucked up. Uh, and I'm I'm going to do better from now on. Um, and my, you know, my hesitation is specifically about mm-hmm. people who are already marginalized, interested in, you know, embodying or researching or exploring um, identities that are not specifically part of their, or honestly are already a part of their own marginalization for example i'm chinese american right um but i'm not like the the chinese american or the chinese person um mm-hmm. yeah i there's so many people so many different perspectives already within that one experience chinese americanness right um and i find myself struggling wondering grappling with anxiety mm-hmm. like am i fetishizing myself Am I orientalizing myself? Am I being racist toward myself? Are my portrayals of my own culture, Mm -hmm. my own lived experiences offensive somehow or harmful? And I read this this article the other day, I'm always referencing these articles that stay with me, um, that talked about how this writer just wishes that people who are marginalized Mm -hmm. are able to shed that fear of blowback and just create. Like, don't stop fucking worrying. We're always worried about being called out or whatever. We're the ones who need to share our stories, right? Just go for it. Um, (laughs) And this idea, you know, of when we talk appropriation, like, Mm-hmm. It's it's more than just getting details wrong, you know, uh, like saying the wrong date, the wrong time, whatever. Um, it's it's also there's something like, I think the question of authenticity is a really troubled one. Like, what qualifies as authentic when we're again I, rooting it in my own experience? 
when we think about something Chinese American, right. this idea of, let's say, like, Kung Pao chicken, right? Or orange chicken. Uh, a lot of Chinese people, like mainlanders, would be like, that's not authentic. You know, even like a lot of foodies would be like, that's mm-hmm. not authentic Chinese food. And to an extent, I'm like, sure. But what do you qualify as authentic? Mm-hmm. Because I would argue it's authentic Chinese American food. Um, I, you know, and there's just, there's a lot of nuance, I think, that's to be had in this discussion, right. in this conversation. And I don't think there are any easy answers when it comes to portraying experiences that are not your own. This is a question that scholars, you know, writers who've been writing for, you know, 40, 50, 60 years, um, critical race, you know, uh, academics, like, we grapple with this question all the time and there is no easy answer. Um, so I think to say there is one would be reductionist and would be inaccurate. Um, and anyone who claims to have the mm-hmm. answer, I would say, would be trying to sell you something false um, because it is an evolving conversation that depends on so much. There's always context. You know, there's also the question of like, are you, for example, a white person who has been invited you know, by a person of color to share in their culture who has been explicitly invited to back a Kickstarter, you know, by Chinese people, you know, for, you know, where you're playing Chinese characters, it wouldn't be racist then for you as a white person to buy this like $45 book and play as a Chinese person in a Chinese inspired setting, right? In fact, that's actively what these creators are asking you to do. Um, So I think there's context. And I think there's also the idea of well, look at your table. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're one cishet person at a table full of queer people and they're like, we want you to try playing a woman, Jake, for once, please, for the love of God, you know, like a queer woman, do it. Uh, and Jake's like, okay, I'll give it a shot. You know, there are people around that table who know Jake, first of all, he's mm-hmm. within their community, he's within their friend group, yeah. and who would be able to hold him accountable if he's being kind of, you know, disrespectful with it. Um, and if it's just a home game not being streamed, then the harm would be limited to that table, right? That home table. I think the question, the stakes change when you're streaming to an audience. Right. When you're releasing a podcast to an audience, you know, these mm-hmm. questions of representation, of scope of reach. Um, again, there's so much nuance. There's so much right. complexity when it comes to this question. And I'm always constantly grappling with it as well. Um, but yeah, that was a long spiel I went on. Uh, <laughs> those are my four cents on the matter. <laughs> no, that's great. Because I think that is one thing that a lot of people don't consider is that it's not just some easy thing. It's not cut and dry. Mm-hmm. It's not black and white. It There's... The world is mostly gray if we were talking about, you know, just the color like that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not something is or it isn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Totally. I Yeah, and I myself, ha- as a straight man, have played um, female lesbian characters. But I think what actually happened, I didn't actually usually plan for them to be lesbians. But I think my mindset was I'm attracted to women. So when I started playing a female D&D character, they were still attracted to women. And then I became a lesbian. And I was like, well, I didn't really... I'm not actually trying to be a lesbian, really. I'm trying to be myself, but I'm now female. So this is just what happened. And those, you know, were home games. So I don't think, again, the harm that I may have had was limited to a few people. So at least we have that going for us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think that's really funny. Uh, Two thoughts immediately came to mind. When he said that, uh, the first thought was, I saw this tweet maybe a couple weeks back um, about someone recounting their experience doing improv, which really resonated me because I've been doing improv for so long. Um, And she was talking about how you want to know what it's like to be a woman doing improv. This is what it's like. In one of the first scenes I was ever in, this like dude started a scene being like, you know, what up, bitch, make me, you know, make me a sandwich. And the person who is facilitating the scene was like, all right, stop dude, can you redo that? Like, start with a different, you know, 
don't call her a bitch or a slut or whore. She's she's a person, a character, you know, redo right. the scene. So he redid the scene and he literally stammered and was like, uh, but m- 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 mom, mommy, which I think is so funny because it shows that a, for a lot of men who haven't interrogated a lot of this misogyny, right? right? A lot of this um, chauvinism, the only way, the only way of seeing that they can actually embody when it comes to perceiving women is that of the, you know, are they a slut or are they my mom? <laughs> you know, like, are they a prostitute or are they a caregiver? And that's the only mode in which men, certain men know how to interact with women and perceive women. And I think that if we were to ask a man like that to play a woman or to play someone, you know, outside of his comfort zone, I do not trust mm-hmm. him to be able to do a character in a way that is not a blatant character. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that also opens up the question then, is there a responsibility that we have toward each other to educate each other? And I think that, first of all, if anyone's educating anyone, pay the person who's educating, (laughs) compensate them for their labor. Um, But also, I'm a strong proponent of white dudes, y'all gotta hold community meetings man (laughs) like hold town halls like put up set up a zoom call invite other white dudes who are interested in being less shitty and within your little little white dude cluster (laughs) talk about it because then it's happening away from people who that conversation first of all could harm and second of all especially if it's facilitated by like white dudes who are doing the work you know know you know are committed to calling in other white guys you know have experience facilitating right like have this breadth and depth of knowledge and resources to draw upon and experience and ties to the community that they're trying to talk to i think more of that work needs to happen you know by people who are in power need to hold fucking seriously like town hall meetings like if it weren't a pandemic, I would say, like, get together, you know, in your living room or a kitchen or a bar, maybe not a bar, but somewhere <laughs> private, and have a facilitated conversation about the ways you've hurt other people in your life and how you can do better, either through your games or, like, through your actual, you know, outside of your hobby or, you know, whatever you do. I think more of that needs to happen. And if, honestly, if more of that happened, I think the world would be a better place because it, t- it takes the onus away from the marginalized, right? For sure. You know, and we're always shouting, like, listen to us, listen to us, like, stop hurting us. It takes the onus off of our shoulders and it puts it on the people who are actually doing the hurting. Um, and honestly, in my life, I've only come across maybe a couple of white dudes that I would trust to do that work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if they all did that work and they educated a couple more white dudes and they educated a couple more white dudes, honestly, I think the world would be a better place. Yeah, I mean, I think as a white dude, I'm doing my best to grow, but I know, you know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe not so long, I was probably one of these shitty white dudes too. So, <laughs> you know, we all got to put in the work. Mm-hmm. It's It doesn't start, you don't magically become great overnight. It takes work and you got to do a lot to get there. Definitely. Yeah, and I think that's something, again, that a lot of people don't think about. It's Mm -hmm. like they're like, well, I'm just – I'm not racist. Like, no, it isn't just not racist. It's are you doing the work to be anti-racist, like anti-transphobia? Like, are you you trying to overcome those internalized things that are just part of you? Mm -hmm. Because it is work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another, you know, another problem is racist has like very big negative connotations of like this binary idea that a lot of white people have of I'm either racist or I'm not. And it's like, no, you're probably sometimes racist, but you can do the work (laughs) to try not to be racist more often than not. Totally. Because a lot of times, you know, 
it's like, well, if if I think of a racist person, I'm probably going to think of like, you know, a neo-Nazi. Mm-hmm. But really, it's like, it could be my mom. It mm-hmm. could be, you know, anyone. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think, you know, there's definitely this big, especially like white moderate fear of being called a racist, right? It's like one of the worst things you can mm-hmm. be called. It's, you know, almost worse to be called a racist than to actually do racist things, right? It's like such a serious accusation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and we've seen it. And I'm glad that, you know, people who have been called out for, you know, harming people of color, black people are losing their jobs, right? Like being marked as a pariah, you know, like mm-hmm. going to going to prison. I have... I'm a prison abolitionist, so I don't believe in the idea of prisons, and I don't think people should go to prison, mm-hmm. um, but to use examples, right? Um, I think, you know, this is definitely getting a little off topic from D&D, uh, but it's all related, right? Um, yeah. This idea of being labeled something is, I think, definitely useful in certain contexts, but also I do worry about how it can limit someone from growing. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Because if we think about the college example, right, when we think about, let's say, um, someone who has committed sexual assault, um, if we end up um, expelling this young man, right, what we actually end up doing is you expel a disenfranchised, angry man who has committed sexual assault, you expel him from a college community where there are RAs, where there is procedures, you know, Mm -hmm. where there is support network, hopefully for survivors, you expel him into a greater community where he hasn't learned anything and he will likely hurt other women who just aren't protected within your institution. Um, So, yeah, that's sort of where I'm coming from when it comes to harm and accountability and, you know, reform and instead of like a prison mentality i'm not so much i i completely agree with you yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's this maybe i'm like talking a little bit out my butt but it, i've been thinking a lot about christianity specifically um and the culture of christianity that is so prevalent in the united states specifically like these puritan ideals of um we are all born sinners, right, is the primary conceit behind Christianity. Um, and if you repent, if you feel bad, if you feel guilty enough, then you can still be saved. If you accept Christ as your savior, you'll go to heaven, right? And I think this isn't just, like, the why I say, the reason why I say, like, the U.S. is a Christian nation isn't just because there's a, a lot of Christians, but also because the culture of Christianity, this idea of guilt and penance and you have to suffer for your sins in order to go to heaven is what allows is the ideology part of the ideology that allows the prison industrial complex to survive that and of course um anti-blackness and the legacy of slavery Mm -hmm. um so when we're thinking about labeling people something like rapist or racist you know or sexist you're you're misogynist you can't like that's that's a label that that defines your identity as opposed to what you've done you know Mm -hmm. like if you're a racist person you know you're and you're called racist, then you are not given the opportunity by other white people, right, um, mm-hmm. to learn and educate yourself away from people you've harmed, then you're likely going to be pushed farther and farther to the right. Uh, which is why, again, I'm so, I'm like less interested in like, be you know, creating a list of names of people who need to be, you know, like booted out or whatever, and more interested in taking that list of names, bringing it to white people who claim they're doing the work and say, rehabilitate these folks, you know, like instead of just like pushing them out of the hobby, pushing them out, let's actually do the work, you know, by the people who have the means and the resources and the energy, you know, and the privilege to do the work, um, for sure, you know, to educate these people. Right. And this, it sounds a lot like kind of our, our current transition from saying, disabled person to person with a disability or you know what other 
whatever other example you want like that where it's like where I'm not defined by my disability I have a disability and it's part of me so like in this case it would be you know I have committed sexual assault and I'm trying to grow but I'm not a sexual assaultist I don't think that's a word uh, but <laughs> assault or rapist you know. yeah this is a for yeah. sure a heavy conversation um and I would say when it comes to oh well we'll put a warning at the front of this one <laughs> yeah Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I wouldn't feel comfortable otherwise. Um, what you know, I also hesitate to jump to the conclusion of never call someone a racist. Oh yeah. Uh, because I feel like you know, I I'm I guess what I'm trying to say here is I'm less interested. I'm someone who's less fixated on the label and the identity, mm-hmm. and I'm more interested in the actual action, the work, you know, the coalition right. building that needs to happen. Um, so, like, if, you know, if someone has repeatedly committed harm, is clearly not interested in growing, then, yeah, what, fuck, fuck it. Call them a rapist. Call them mm-hmm. a racist. You know, call a spade a spade, right? Um, but I think there is difference in degrees of nuance, you know, yeah. between, you know, someone who's, like, an alt-right, whatever, like, neo-Nazi piece of shit, you know, someone who's clearly uninterested in rehabilitating mm-hmm. themselves, and I would not encourage anyone to do the work of, you know, like, the whole getting dinner with a Nazi thing, I think, is a is completely disgusting to me and my sensibilities. That's definitely not what I'm trying to say at all. Uh, what I am trying to say is that there are degrees of nuance. There are people who can be educated by people who have the privilege, the resource, the time, and the energy to do the educating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yes. And not I mean, putting it on the affected communities, as you've said. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I was going to say, we appreciate you helping us educate our listeners and ourselves as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. This is a topic that matters a lot to me. You know, I graduated uh, recently with a double major in screenwriting and critical race studies. So basically, I like to say that I got a degree in seeing how and why movies are racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think about this shit like all the time. And again, I don't have all the answers. This is less of a answer giving thing and more of an open-ended conversation um, right right i think asking the right questions honestly are sometimes is sometimes more important than finding the answer that's yeah um, and more feasible all right you want to go into the next question quinn um yeah so we're getting close to when we should probably end it so that you know we don't have a two-hour show let's do one more lighthearted. that's that's D&D what i was gonna question. say cool <laughs> all right so I'm going to say, which of those three other questions that we sent you would you like to do? Ooh. Well, let's, let's talk about our, our favorite aspect of RPGs. All right. What's your favorite aspect? So a lot of my perspective is grounded in D&D, uh, most because it's the, you know, it's the main system I've had access to. Uh, it is unfortunate, I think, in a lot of ways that it's the one system that dominates the hobby. Yeah. Uh, but I just want to be, I want to be transparent uh about my perspective Mm -hmm. uh so my favorite aspect of tabletop games of rpgs is the collaborative storytelling component um i am someone who at the heart of who i am i'm a writer uh i am a improviser i am a storyteller and i am also you know a kind of extroverted aries uh which means that even though i have a lot of passion and flame uh i usually stop doing what i'm interested in before i'm even halfway done so having other people around the table right like players that i am accountable to uh <laughs> makes D so appealing to me because it's not like a project that i just pick up 
do for a few moments and drop. There are people counting on me. There are people who are interested in the story that we're telling together. Um, and this idea of discovering self, discovering story, mm-hmm. discovering character through play is extremely appealing to me. You know, this idea of like no plan survives contact with the actual <laughs> game. Uh, yeah. is is very 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 enticing to me in a way that i think it scratches an itch that video games can't scratch um that films and books can't scratch mm-hmm. uh it's like its own medium uh and what is appealing to me is the fact that we're around a table with friends that i know and trust and we're telling a story together mediated of course by dice rolls mm-hmm. yes 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 well and and the dice rolls sometimes are at the best moments you know when you're barbarian is swinging an axe at a bad guy and rolls a crit fail. And now it's like, well, <laughs> instead of this super cool moment, we're going to have this other interesting moment that's probably not going to be as good for you, but it will still be a good story. Yes. Yeah, some of my favorite things are when, you know, just everything goes just to shit. Like, <laughs> you try to do it right and just everyone rolls terribly and it's just like, no, like, this thing is going to go bad. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This, this reminds me of a little story, if you guys don't mind me telling a little story. But <laughs> I guess I'll wait. I'll wait for your confirmation. Oh, no, go for it. Go for <laughs> it. I'm interested. So our, I was playing in this party, and I was playing a warlock. I actually talked about her on the first episode. It's, her name is Kalia. So she was not very wise and thought she was a cleric. <laughs> but uh, the party was going to uh, this like little city that we'd been in a few times had been attacked and a lot of people had been captured by orcs and we went to this orc like encampment that had these big uh uh, like walls like palisade walls around it and i was supposed to hypnotic pattern and then just kind of like you know stun a bunch of the orcs and then we just clean them up one by one and i was doing this and then my character saw inside the the encampment that some of the other orcs had the prisoners like and they were about to kill them so i dimension doored inside and then i broke concentration because i was getting attacked by like five orcs by myself (laughs) and all of a sudden the now all the hypnotic pattern orcs are attacking my friends and it almost turned into a tpk because of i was like well this is what my character would do unfortunately it was a terrible idea (laughs) Yeah, I totally hear you. Um, what The question of... I think it's a really interesting question in RPGs, though. Like, this is what my character would do, but it's suboptimal, right? This is what my character would do, yeah. but it's risky. It's a big choice. It might, like, yeah. put the other players in danger, or it might screw the other characters over in some regard. Um, and I think there's a fine line between ta- making a big choice, taking a creative risk, which I always encourage players to do, and mm-hmm. being kind of a dick just because that's what your player would do. Yeah. Yes, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in this case, it was like the party afterward was mad at her. And I was like, yes, you should be, because this was a terrible choice. And I think that as Alex, I'm fine with you guys being mad at her. And as her, she's like, I feel bad because I was trying to help the prisoners, but I did screw over my mm-hmm. friends a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. <laughs> my, my question to you in that yeah. case would be, were the characters mad or were the players also mad at you? Oh, just the characters, I think. Great. Uh, then I, think I don't that's, think the other players are mad. That sounds like a fun situation. 
Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. One of them was kind of being the dad of the group. Right. And he chastised her as he had to do many times because <laughs> she was just very low wisdom and made poor choices. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think that's a great anecdote, and I think it really helps illustrate like that that really careful line that I think uh, a lot of players are walking when they're making choices that could screw the party over. Yeah, yeah. and it's also you know it's a also a good example of sometimes you do your plan goes terribly but it's the thing that sticks with you like you know i played that character for quite a while and i cannot name as many encounters where we just went in and beat the monster up and went out you know but i can yeah. remember this one in great detail because of how bad it went oh like, definitely that's something that i find like the most interesting is when things go badly is because like it's not as much fun when everything just goes your way. Like, mm-hmm. you do want some challenge. Like, that's part mm-hmm. of the satisfaction that, you know, like, like if you're playing a video game, if it's super mm-hmm. easy, you're probably going to put it down because you're like, what's what's the reason for me? Like, I'm not going to put a bunch of time into it if it's just comes to me with no problems. Exactly. I completely <laughs> agree with you. I also think it depends on the design of the game itself. For sure. Like D&D specifically is like a... Is basically a war game, right? Yeah. The most important part of it, or rather the the part of it that the rules pay the most attention to is combat. Yeah. So when we think about challenging, you know, what's challenging about a D&D game is if, if combat is, is ch- just challenging enough, but not so challenging that it feels frustrating. Right. Um, that's sweet spot, right? Like, I think Matt Colville put it really well when he said... Um, Players want to feel like their backs are against the wall, that all odds are against them, and then to surmount that challenge. Like, that is what is fun for people when they play D&D. But if we look at, like, a game that, you know, maybe doesn't even have a GM or is diceless or whatever and is mostly just about telling a story and there's no combat, then what's fun about it isn't maybe isn't necessarily, like, the challenge of fighting the serpent or whatever, um, but more so the the fun is found in, in telling an unexpected story. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, yeah, I really think it depends on the mentality, you know, the classic, like, player archetypes. Like, why are your players showing up to the table in the first place? Are they there to optimize? Are they there to risk manage and plan? Uh, are they there to tell a story or role play? Are they there to dungeon crawl, <laughs> you know? And I think it's important to have that conversation with your players during a session zero. Figure out what makes it fun for each different person and and plan accordingly as the GM. I, yeah, completely. Well... Uh, Connie, it's been great to have you. Yeah, it's been great to be here. Thank you, Quinn and Alex, for uh, having me. Yes, Anytime. thank you. <laughs> I mean, if you want to come back, we we would have you back. That's You've true. Oh, it was, yeah. <laughs> we, we definitely enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, this was great. I feel like it was less of a conversation and more of me going off for like 40 minutes. <laughs> uh, but thank you for being such gracious hosts and for listening to my spiels. I would love to come back. You know, like, I feel like, you know, these conversations are never finished. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would love yeah. to, of course, talk about D&D more <laughs> specifically and tabletop games. Yeah. Maybe next time you come back, we can make a character together. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. All right. So, yes. And we have one last question. I know you talked about it at the beginning, but just to recap mm-hmm. for our listeners. Oh, do you have any upcoming projects is one thing. Oh, 
Yeah, that's a great question. I am currently working on releasing a horror anthology podcast uh, under the Transplaner RPG banner. Hopefully the pilot will be done in time for a, a Halloween release. And then I'll be releasing the rest of the 13-part special uh, in the weeks following. But yeah, keep your eyes peeled. If that's interesting to you, horror anthology set in a non-normative uh, fantasy world, uh, think kind of... Um, uh, the Magnus Archives meets uh, Welcome to Night Vale a little bit. Um, it's what I've been working on. Uh, but yeah, that's an upcoming project I'm really excited about. Awesome. awesome. I think I will check it out. Quinn hates horror, but I will <laughs> probably check it out. Awesome. Yeah, I, I'm i like, you know, writing it, I'm like, I'm not scared of this. And then I shared it with my cast and they were like, honey, what the fuck? That was horrifying. <laughs> so I really don't know. I don't have a good grasp on how objectively. I think it's... It's also harder if you're writing it and you're in it. Yes. Like, I've heard other, like, horror writers talk about it and they're like, I don't know if this is scary or not until you share it with someone else. They're like, this was the most terrifying thing I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Yes, I definitely feel that. I'm writing this and I'm like, oh, this is so ridiculous. No one's ever going to believe or be scared by this. And, like, my partner's <laughs> like, that's horrifying. What's wrong with you? <laughs> so it really, I guess, is a perspective question. Yeah. Right. And as the author, I think you're a little bit more detached from it. Like, you're like, well, I know this is fake because I'm making it up. Yes. All right. And then uh, do you want to give us that transplaner rpg info again absolutely or where people can find you on twitter or the other socials definitely uh so again uh, i'm the gm and executive producer behind transplaner rpg we are an all transgender person of color led homebrew D game set in a non-colonial anti-orientalist world our main campaign and uh, gm advice series slash player roundtable stream on alternating saturdays at 3 p.m central you can find us at trans planar rpg that's t-r-a-n-s-p-l-a-n-a-r rpg uh, at twitter tumblr twitch that's where we stream uh, instagram youtube you can find past videos on youtube we also have a written detailed but succinct uh, recap document available on our twitter uh, feed uh, that gives a recap of each episode that's aired so far if you don't want to have to rewatch hours of odds <laughs> I have to ask, how many times do you have to practice that before you can just say it so flawlessly? Yeah, I've just, I've said it so many times at this point, like just plugging it. I, you know, do the spiel every, you know, at the beginning of every stream. So it's kind of like muscle memory at this point. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again for coming, Connie. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Alex and Quinn. This was an absolute pleasure. Yes. Same here. You can find more information about our show at a couple of characters podcast.com. Have ideas or feedback? Or need help creating your next character? Email us at a couple of characters pod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ACOC Podcast. We'd like to thank John Beacon for composing our theme music. And if you like what we're doing, please rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, the ratings really help us and uh, give us a five star review and we'll give you a shout out. And also tell a friend, you know, because word of mouth also helps. That's true. And another way you can support us is by becoming a Patreon donor, and you can just search ACOC Podcast on Patreon.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Alex and Winterland. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NaughtyDrQuim. Thanks for listening. Keep on rolling.
All right, let's do a clap on three. Okay. One, two. Close enough. <laughs> oh, okay. Hold on. We're just going to get our cat down. One of our cats down. She just down. wants to be part of the show. No, she wants to climb on things that she shouldn't climb on. <laughs> she wants to have her voice heard. She has had her voice heard. <laughs> True. And my cat, too, knocked over my speaker. <laughs> like three weeks, four weeks, five weeks. I don't know what day <laughs> Whatever it is. number of weeks that is. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many listeners we actually have. We... We are bad about looking into that, so <laughs> it could be three people, it could be 300, but I don't think it's 300. 